and welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, I speak with an Iranian-American actor in Hollywood who's also politically active and very vocal about relations between Iran and the United States. We talk about the portrayal of Iran and Iranians in film and cinema and discuss the complexities of the politics between Tehran and Washington. My guest today is Farshad Farahat, actor and director who received acclaim for his roles in the film Argo and the series House of Cards. He studied journalism at the University of Massachusetts and is currently doing a PhD in conflict resolution. Farshad has written on U.S.-Iran relations in the Los Angeles Times, The Hill, Huffington Post, and Newsweek, and he sits on the board of directors of Plowshares Fund. He joins me from California today. Farshad, welcome to the Iran podcast. Hi, Negar. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. I'd like to first start talking about your current projects, what films or series you're working on, what's coming next um, that you've been working, especially during this pandemic. Well, the main project we're working on or I'm working on is on a series based on the Shahnameh. Um, mm-hmm. We've been working day and night on it, um, pre-production and development. Um, we have a great team uh, that's led by one of the main producers of Game of Thrones. Um, and they absolutely love this mythic world that nobody has tapped into. And so we're excited. Uh, we're in very preliminary uh, stages of development, but uh, it's exciting and uh, it's daily and, uh, you know, the ups and downs of production. But we're excited. We're excited to have a series uh, based on... Uh, the peak areas of the Shahnameh's mythic and um, regional uh, glory. <laughs> that sounds very interesting. Talk about some of the stories that you think are going to be covered and also what is your role going to be in this Shahnameh? Any role is always evolving, uh, hopefully as a producer and as, a, as one of the actors. Uh, uh, we have so many great characters and so... And the stories... Uh, they capture, hopefully, and the main parts of the Shahnameh's uh, um, epic and, and some of the fantastic creatures and characters that come and go, like the beautiful Seymour and, of course, Rostam and Sohrab and, and uh, all the main characters, uh, you know, from Zahok, the serpent king, which, you know, we seem to have many serpent kings over the years. Mm-hmm. And that goes all the way to the you know, the, the battle with uh, Esfandiar and uh, Rostam, etc. Mm-hmm. And um, how did the pandemic go for you, Farshad? I mean, it's been very difficult for people in almost all professions, but especially in the performing arts where you have to be present with a large group of people, you know, filming or playing or anything. How did, how was the past couple of years for you in Hollywood, if you spent it in Hollywood? So, yeah, uh, the pandemic has really affected us. As you know, it shut down uh, Hollywood for an entire year. Um, We actually had a theater play uh, on the 1953 CIA coup that we had a production here in San Francisco and Los Angeles. We were planning Mm -hmm. to bring it to D.C., uh, but uh, our plans got derailed. We're hoping to pick that up again. Uh, but to answer your question, it was difficult, but things are opening up and I'm optimistic. Mm-hmm. Great. 
Um, so Farshad, you've had roles in different films and series. We, I mentioned Argo. You've been in House of Cards, Know Your Enemy, um, a number of different productions. Which one or which roles have been your favorite ones or you really enjoyed um, playing them the most? You know, um, as an actor, I, I actually enjoy playing villains. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I just enjoy outside of politics. Like, let's not talk about the stereotypes and to, to put that aside, at least to compartmentalize it. I do like villains. Villains are interesting, so I don't mind the um, that kind of character. Of course, we have to be mindful of some stereotypes that exist in mm-hmm. our industry that are getting better, and we're working through it. And I, I believe in working through the stereotypes rather than boycotting them. And maybe I'm incorrect at taking that angle or taking that approach. But I feel like the more you get to know producers, the more they get to know you, the more your culture, even in, even in a stereotypical way, is um, presented to them and you have some sort of say within that stereotype, you begin to work out of it. You begin to improve it slowly, evolve it slowly. So, of course, sometimes it's been difficult to do stereotypical roles that I feel like am I um, adding on to the stereotype that is causing so much harm and causing so much uh, death and injury to people in the Middle East and to our own soldiers and our own um, uh, personnel. Uh, It makes me think, uh, is this a positive thing or a negative thing? Am I adding to the problem or am I helping the problem? And I feel like there are roles that are absolutely racist, absolutely over the top that I have passed on or I've tried to pass on. Um, And then there are roles that are still stereotypical, quote unquote, but there's some room within it to to work out. So I guess, uh, you know, I, I like playing the villains, but also you have to be mindful of, you know, what the message is and uh, is there a way to work backward and bring some understanding to two worlds that have been at odds for at least the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's an important thing you mentioned. There's a lot of uh, criticism of how Hollywood portray certain ethnicities or certain um, nations, especially with the portrayal of Middle East that's coincided also with the past two decades of the war on terror, of um, two major wars in the region, and um, how some of these portrayals in film and series um, sort of connect back to that um, stereotype, as you were mentioning. But let's talk about... um, how I, I want to talk about how you think specifically Iran and Iranians are portrayed in Hollywood. And one uh, good example, a great film of that is Argo, which where you had this iconic role of um, this checkpoint guard, Azizi, um, from that very um, the complex era post-Iranian revolution, cutting ties with the United States and the hostage crisis. Talk about that film, your role, and basically how you felt playing in Argo. A stereotype is for everyone in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Whether you are a California blonde, or you are an Asian American, or you are any, any ethnicity. Of course, some are worse and more deep than others, but it is, I believe, in the performers and the 
artists within the industry to slowly change it, to slowly evolve it. I've had many Caucasian American friends and co coworkers that have voiced their frustrations with um, stereotypes. Uh, so it is part of the industry and we need to work mm. from within the industry to solve it and to evolve it. And it's, there's never a ro rainbow at the end of the, you know, there's never a gold pot at the end of the rainbow on this issue. It's just constant growth. And Hollywood is doing a great job of taking those steps. Some of it mm. is cosmetic, but some of it is, is real. So that's just a general note in my, my estimation of stereotypes within entertainment because... We have stereotypes uh, everywhere. You know, we have them in Iran. We have them everywhere. Um, mm. About your question, I, I felt like that was the role in Argo and the producers and the production of Argo. Uh, they were pushing, uh, and at the beginning of the film, uh, they showed a good five minutes of how we got where we got, showed how the U.S. government had overthrown Mossadegh's democracy in 1953, and that that episode led to the whole uh, hostage taking and the whole 1979 revolution. As, as small as that five minutes at the beginning of the film was, it was a major step uh, for a major American Hollywood film to acknowledge mm -hmm. that. Uh, so that in itself made me excited to be involved. Um, producers as, as George Clooney and Ben Affleck, they were very open to listening and hearing our perspective on... Um, on what happened and why we got to where we got in the in the 1979 hostage situation and the revolution. So I, I, I liked all that and I felt it was a step in the right direction. Um, and then as far as my own role, it was a very complicated role. I felt a man who, uh, a young man who was angry at the West for what they had done, angry at what had become of his uh, country but also a man who's carrying probably dogmas, religious dogmas that uh, kept him from uh, approaching that problem in a constructive way and, and you know, mm -hmm. resorting to violence and resorting to um, sectarianism and et cetera. Mm -hmm. And um, you, um, I agree with you, Ben Affleck and George Clooney, I mean, politically active, very progressive and very different um, outlook on these um, foreign policy issues, a country like Iran and this history that you were talking about um, and the film, the production, Argo, this, this combination of the storytelling that you were mentioning is very important. But um, can you also more generally speak to beyond Argo and beyond your specific roles to how Iran and Iranians and as an extension, Middle Easterners, you see, are being portrayed in Hollywood. Like you said, there's been a lot of progress, a lot of um, listening to the feedback. But um, how, where do you think we are now and where this industry is going when it comes to specifically this country that has been an, an American foe for the past four decades? Well, it has been pretty negative. It has been pretty straight, uh, stereotypical. Um, it has been portrayed almost exclusively in the p political realm of modern U.S.-Iran conflict, which I'm sure mm. you hear, if you go to Iran, you'll, you'll hear the same thing about America. It's very stere stereotypical portrayal of America and Americans. But I feel like 
our culture, the Iranian culture, and the, the ancient civilization has not at all been presented to the greater mainstream media or Hollywood, which is a great opportunity because I feel like it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful history, beautiful civilization outside of modern politics. And, uh, for example, the Shahnameh and other uh, beautiful um, poetry and uh, uh, concepts that we've had in that civilization. And so I, I find it as a great um, opportunity to start share those, uh, those, um, those stories and, and, and those uh, cultural uh, relics that we have. Uh, and Hollywood is opening up to it slowly but surely. Uh, they haven't been before. You know, we've seen many <laughs> epics on Rome and uh, Greece, and I think uh, it's a good opportunity, both economically and both entertainment-wise, for Hollywood to start opening up to this vast culture that stretches from Rome to China, really the um, Silk Road. And that might be the way to solve our modern problems, modern political problems. So, sorry I went on a tangent, but... It's not hasn't been good, but it can be great. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I'm glad you brought up our modern uh, political problems because I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about um, your advocacy and your political work. You're very aware of these political problems and you're very active. You, as I mentioned, you sit on the board of Plasher's Fund, um, a prominent institution that is striving for a world without nuclear weapons that also connects to U.S.-Iran um, tensions or relations, specifically on the issue of the nuclear deal, the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, that's in the news all, all all the time these days. So talk about your role, how you got involved with this organization and basically your political awareness and advocacy on this issue of U.S.-Iran relations at times and tensions. Nigar, as you know, um, the 2015 nuclear deal and the diplomacy that came between the two countries, in my opinion, is the best way to strengthen Iran's civil society, to be able to engage the world both economically and politically uh, in a way that is both beneficial for their civil rights and for our foreign policy, the U.S. foreign policy, where we don't resort to war and sending our soldiers and wasting our tax dollars on another costly Mideast war. So on both ends, I feel diplomacy would be the best, but also very slow and unattractive <laughs> approach to mm -hmm. uh, solving our issues, uh, both politically within Iran and also opening the door for the Iranian people in getting economic engagement, which would then lead, in my opinion, to hopefully changes within that government that can only be done by its people and its strength of its people. That's what I believe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we talk about the nuclear deal or those nuclear negotiations, it's a very technical issue. But at the end of the day, it's, it's the issue of war and peace. Do you want to go along with tensions that bring military conflict that affect not only Iran and the U.S., but almost every... Um, country and peoples in the region, or do you want to resolve issues peacefully? So diplomacy is essentially the absence of war and conflict and is trying to go 
with uh, with resolving peacefully. And that is actually what happened successfully during the Obama years with the nuclear negotiations and that very historic, almost unbelievable nuclear deal. But then the Trump years happened. So I want you to talk about that a little bit, how you saw this campaign of maximum pressure, as President Trump called it, and the tough rhetoric and the military escalation with Iran um, would that broad and the result of that when you're looking at it from the vantage point of someone who's both Iranian and American? Well, Negar, as you, you know, as you clearly mentioned and I think correctly mentioned, uh, we saw that diplomacy was opening doors and hope, hopefully opening opportunities for both civil society, Iran, and both diplomacy here in our foreign policy in the States. Many, many opponents labeled us and labeled any any promoter of diplomacy as regime stooges or whatnot, and that this was only strengthening the regime. The answer mm -hmm. to that was, if there's no diplomacy, the hard line and the Revolutionary Guard in Iran will be strengthened, and will be strengthened across not just Iran, but the region. And Trump's maximum pressure policy led to exactly that, to the weakening of the people, uh, their bank accounts, and their social uh, mobility, and strengthening the Revolutionary Guard. And it has happened, it's clear, it's as clear as day. Uh, there's no revolution on the horizon in Iran because of Trump's policy, maximum pressure policy. There is none, there is no chance of a street movement. When people are hungry and dying, they're not gonna be going into the street to, over, to overthrow a government. And I feel like this is the problem, it both, wastes our tax dollars here in America on the military industrial complex and it weakens the Iranian people from any chance of engaging the world economically and within that economic strength being able to influence their own government from within their own uh, their own system so it was incorrect it's clearly uh, is there a revolution in Iran now after Trump's four years no um, there's no it's only, the, the guard has only gotten stronger. Mm -hmm. um, you're exactly right. I think there's this illusion or misrepresentation, depends on who you ask, that this maximum pressure and the sanctions and a maximalist political um, demands are going to pressure the regime, weaken the regime, and somehow support the Iranian people, which is something that Secretary Pompeo and President Trump really talked about with tweets in Persian or, you know, making, um, issuing statements in support of the Iranian people. But in reality, and this research and studies have shown, it's not just something that's our opinion, it shows that the sanctions and the pressure and the military conflict actually weakens the people, like you're saying, weakens the civil society. And it's the most hardline element of the regime that actually benefit from it and get strong. So the Trump years are over. We heard what you thought about that. What is your advice to President Biden? Some of us here in Washington expected a breakthrough when it comes to Iran and the nuclear deal a bit earlier. That didn't happen. But what would be your advice to the Biden administration right now? First and foremost, lift all sanctions on medicine and food during a devastating pandemic. This is genocide. This is an act of unbelievable war that Trump started and Biden is continuing. And there's, 
there is always a, a reminiscent of the colonial European white supremacy within these policies. Whether it was the overthrow of Mossadegh 60 years ago, or the arming of Saddam, or even the arming of the prince of Saudi Arabia right now, sanctioning of Syria, sanctioning of Iraq, sanctioning of Iran, these are rooted in colonial white supremacy. So does Biden want to be linked to Trump on this? Uh, because that's a question that we Americans, the majority minority that's on the rise, will be asking soon. Uh, this, will be, this will come to light like other issues have come to light. And does he want to be on the white European colonial side of these policies that are starving human beings uh, who can't get medicine and food during a global pandemic, a, hundred, a once in a hundred year global pandemic? Uh, that's a question that will be asked of the Biden uh, administration, if not now, in 10 years, when this movement grows and grows within our minority majority uh, country here in the States. So they need to really look at these sanctions that are against the people of Iran. B forget politics, just on a basic human level during a global pandemic. That's number one, in my opinion. And it is far late now. It's it, it's just absurd that we're still here and they still have not done any humanitarian acts uh, and to me, that again shows that on less pressure, for example, I don't think the Biden administration would be supporting Black Lives Movement or any type of social movement unless they were forced to. Because they're mm -hmm. still in power, they're still Caucasian Americans in power, and the majority minority has to show them that these kind of policies will be questioned down the line. You will be questioned. And he's aligned with Trump 100% on this. And now we have the hardliners in Iran in control. Um, mm -hmm. if for people who say there's no difference, you know, they should compare the eight years of Ahmadinejad to the eight years of Rouhani, if there's no difference mm -hmm. between who's president in Iran. Of course, it's not a pure democracy. Of course, there's a theocracy on top of it. Uh, but we're hoping within that democracy, there's mobility to expel uh, the theocratic, autocratic, and undemocratic um, uh, legs and arms of the Iranian regime. But point being, I think the Biden administration has missed a major opportunity here. And um, I think the deal is um, on life support, if not already dead. Mm -hmm. Let me just make a note to our listeners, because we've had some excellent episodes on this podcast on the impact of sanctions. There was an episode called Humanitarian Impact of Sanctions with Erica Moret, who's an expert um, studying the uh, very negative impact of sanctions on various countries, including Iran. And you also had an episode called Four Decades of Sanctions with Tyler Kulis, who is an attorney studying and working on the legal side of how sanctions impact the Iranian society. So I encourage everyone to go back and listen to those to get more detailed info about what you and I are talking about, Farshad. But so... What do you think is going to happen? Like you said, and I agree with you, the deal, the nuclear deal is on life support. And that was the gateway, our gateway to a non-conflict, uh, peaceful um, path of resolving tensions with Iran. If President Biden doesn't take your advice, let's say, what do you think is going to happen? How do you see, what is it that you fear in the future that if this deal is not revived, would happen? Do you think uh, they're going down the path of war or how do you see U.S.-Iran relations unfolding without a revival of the JCPOA? I don't know if war will, will occur, a uh, physical war. I, I feel like the 
as you say, 40 years of sanctions, has created and forced the Iranian regime through ballistic missiles to be able to position itself across the region that if it is overtly attacked by the U.S. or its allies, to inflict enough pain on U.S. bases and on U.S. allies that that calculation would be too big of a risk or big of a price to pay for U.S. allies and the U.S. So overt war, no. But the war on humanity, the war on the people in the region, the war, economic war that is devastating human beings, that is devastating democratic movements, that is devastating economic movement within the region, the economic union we need within the region to get past these sectarian problems that both the hardliners in Iran, hardliners in Israel, hardliners in Saudi Arabia are benefiting from. This is like the WWF. Mm. Uh, these mm. people benefit from the conflict. They might look like they're at odds, but actually them being in conflict keeps them in power. The likes of Netanyahu, the likes of Khamenei and the House of Saud. So I feel like that's the conflict that will remain and will fester. Uh, and that's the war. And, and economic war is far sometimes more damaging than you bomb a building, it's devastating, but when you sanction a people, that's millions and millions of people dying and you can't see it, it's, it's much more brutal. So I, I don't see necessarily a physical war because of Iran's missile um, positioning within the region, but I do see more economic pain, less democratic movement, and um, a greater delay of what will inevitably happen. This democratic movement will happen. Economic engagement will happen. If we talked about it 60 years ago in Europe and someone would tell you 60 years later, when World War II ended, 60 years later, Germany will be the economic hub of Europe and it's a union now, you'd say you're naive, you're <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. That is the future of the Middle East. How much longer will it be delayed because of U.S., Iran, Saudi, Israeli conflict is the question. Mm -hmm. Well, the nuclear deal was also something that many of us didn't expect happening. I was covering the negotiations in Vienna and, you know, we saw the progress, but it was almost like a miracle when it actually happened. Most people wouldn't believe if you had told us a few years before that something this historic would happen, Iranian American diplomats would appear in public together, shake hands, take pictures and sign an actual um, agreement together. So I agree with you. I think there is potential for change, but it needs vision. It needs bold uh, moves and, and a level of risk taking that um, that is necessary for that kind of um, progress. Now, let's also talk about human rights in Iran, because we know the situation is pretty grim. It's a combination of this economic pressure from sanctions, the pandemic, a lot of government corruption in the country, and also a lot of state repression. Any form of dissent on opposition is very brutally crushed. Protesters had been killed on the street um, by security forces in the past few years. And it just seems like the state has brought down an iron fist on any form of uprising. How do you see this situation of human rights, you know, moving forward in Iran, first of all, and also more importantly, how do you think the U.S. can help or hurt um, when it comes to the human rights of the Iranian people? That's a great question. Um, 
I live in America. Um, so I have access to influencing my country's behavior, mm -hmm. whether it's mm -hmm. sanctions, whether it's war, um, whether it's lack of engagement with the region on environmental issues, which is the major issue coming for the Middle East and Iran is the global warming and climate change. So I can, I could affect, as a citizen of the States, I could best influence my country. And a lot of people think that that means that I'm not pressuring or I would want, wouldn't want to pressure the Iranian regime, which is a very repressive regime, but I don't have access to that. I don't live in Iran. I don't, I don't, I don't know the details on the ground. And therefore, that's why I focus on what the states can do, because I live here as a citizen. I believe I can influence that. That doesn't mean that I don't believe that there's fault in Iran or that there's fault with the Iranian regime. So that's just a personal level. As a citizen of a country, I can influence my own. I can't influence another. I'm not on the ground. But from a distance, which is normally an incorrect analysis by anybody who doesn't live in Iran, so from a distance, if I'm, I'm going to make a comment on the Iranian regime and on the situation, human rights situation, which I'd probably be incorrect, but if you look at uh, individuals like Nasrin Sutudeh, which those are the people I try to li listen to to get as much as I can from what's going on within Iran, it's horrendous. Women's mm -hmm. right is horrendous, what they're doing, the lack of e equality uh, between men and women, uh, political freedom, right to speech, right to gather politically. These are basic rights that the Iranian people don't have. It's evident, it's clear. Uh, so uh, how can the US help? It's, uh, it's gonna be a rhetorical answer. Lift the sanctions, strengthen the civil society, let them get stronger and deal with their uh, government's problems from within. That's what mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about uh, war, Farshad, I grew up in Tehran during the war with Iraq, the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s. I know you also um, grew up there for a few years and you've experienced this war. Talk about your background and this experience with the actual conflict, because for some people, it's it's something that they know and they've heard of in theory. But for, for us growing up through it, I think it's very vivid in the psyche and memory of most Iranians, especially obviously people who lived on the borders with Iraq where the war first broke out, but in other major cities where the bombings were happening. Talk about that experience and some of those memories and how that has impacted or helped shape um, your current um, political understanding of the world. It was the singular event of my life that has influenced my life the most. From wow. the age of two to the age of eight, we were in, in Iran during the major parts of the bombings of Tehran and Iran and the war itself. It influenced and shaped my entire outlook on and issues and psychological issues. Or the reason I got into film and art to try to figure out what these problems were within me. It is brutal. There's no glory in it. There's no glorification of war in, in my estimation. Um, and that the U.S. was arming Saddam Hussein is another problem that I had a major issue with um, when growing up. And, and coming here now, it's, 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 you know, the reconciliation of that is, is very difficult. So it is brutal. It's uh, unfortunately ongoing 
in the region. We are still arming the likes of MBS that is doing the same thing to Yemen as Saddam did to Iran. And it's infuriating that this is still going on during a Biden administration, whatever that means, as, as compares, in comparison to Trump. Mm -hmm. And when there was this one time after the assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani where President Trump tweeted that he would target Iran's cultural sites. And, you know, you and I are talking about these bombings. We've actually witnessed bombings in our cities. And how did you feel as a person who is literally active in the field of culture and as an Iranian and American when you saw that tweet? A genocidal white supremacist. That's it. All right. So, like you said, you grew up in Iran, and then at some point you moved to the U.S., I assume with your family. Talk about how you got into Hollywood. Did you always know you wanted to be an actor? Is this something that happened along the way? Because I also know your education is in journalism. You're studying conflict resolution now. But how did Hollywood happen in parallel? Uh, Negar, before we get to that, can I address an issue um, that we have, you know, if journalists like yourself who have dedicated their life to this issue make sure. comments along the lines that you do. The hate and the misogyny that some fellow Iranian Americans or Iranians or trolls or whatever they are that attack you and others uh, within the journalist industry with disgusting, misogynistic and hateful comments First of all, just that is unacceptable by our community. But second, I'd like to say that we are a traumatized community, whether during mm -hmm. the Shah's era or this repressive regime during uh, Islamic Republic. But we have been traumatized. And this trauma has nowhere to go. And so anyone who has any resolution that is different than ours, we attack them with every emotional fiber in us. I sometimes do. Mm -hmm. um, so some, someone who's lived in America giving me advice about Iran, and I feel like you armed Saddam Hussein and you're talking to me and I get angry inside. My point is, you know, we were at this event and there was so much hate. And this, um, this doctor, a, a psychiatrist, turned to me and said, we're all traumatized. This is a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. And... That is at the root of this behavior. And so I feel like those who might listen to this or might probably not listen to this, but just put a negative comment. <laughs> uh, I feel like we should all recognize that we've gone through a lot of trauma, a lot of trauma, and that hate towards individuals is just going to be an empty tweet into obscurity. I feel like for anyone who has a belief that's different than yours or mine to find a solution that is better, which probably there are better solutions than what we're saying. There are areas that I might be incorrect and it might enhance the autocratic regime in Iran or enhance the empire here in the States. Some of the work in Hollywood I do might enhance both uh, in a negative way. I'm not at all you know, uh, incapable of mistake. And I would hope that our community can share solutions 
with each other rather than hateful, disgusting comments that go nowhere. It's empty. Whatever you say on Twitter is gone in two, three weeks. It means nothing. So I feel like first we all, myself included, which I get angry, um, should recognize we're traumatized, major league traumatized. And then second, is there a solution that I can, I can present and hear from others in our uh, mm-hmm. diaspora? So sorry, I... I had to um, get No, that. thank you actually for making that note. I really appreciate it. And like you're saying, me and some others, especially women in this space, are the subject of a lot of especially online trolling and harassment at some point and hate read. And you're right. Part of it that does come, not all of it comes from our community. Obviously, there's also a lot of money spent in this space. I have to make that note. And there's a lot of manipulation of the online space. But part of it that does come from our community is based in a lot of this trauma you're saying. But we have to be careful as a community, even with our disagreements, to not turn into something which we are against, you know, to not employ the same methods which we criticize, to not basically look like the regime in a way um, when we're dealing with our opponents or people who look who think or act differently than us. And um, unfortunately, that's something that we witness a lot and have to experience when it comes to the online space. You're absolutely right. Um, but thank you so much for bringing that note. And um, I hope some of our listeners will, um, will, you know, there's this great saying that says, try to promote what you love instead of bashing what you hate. So you, you can do constructive um, uh, promotion of what you think is the right way instead of just spending all of your time uh, to attack those who think differently than you. And I'm sure you get that a lot as well. But um, so finally, you know, you're very aware of the world around you, of, of the uh, international space, you've studied journalism, and now you're also doing a PhD in conflict resolution. I finally want to ask how that is going for you. And does that mean that you're planning to leave Hollywood or is that something you're doing simultaneously? Uh, no, no, no. Um, that, um, that helps my work in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping to hone in my understanding, knowledge of the issues that I'll be hopefully dealing with within film. Um, And those um, studies can hone in a specific area within the industry that I hope to work. Um, Not only, of course, I'd love to diversify and and, um, play other roles and play outside of the Middle East roles, but because the reason I got into the industry was hopefully to first understand a little bit more about our uh, relations with the U.S. relations with the Middle East, but also hopefully influence it in a um, personal way. Um, And to do that, I feel like you need knowledge in in, in that spectrum. And I've, you know, those two areas of uh, journalism and conflict resolution are areas that I feel can enhance um, the... um, influence or the uh, feedback I could give within the industry. Mm-hmm. Let me also plug another podcast um, that is produced by the excellent team at Plowshares Fund, and you sometimes appear on that podcast. It's called Press the Button. 
Um, they mainly focus on disarmament and nuclear nonproliferation, but there's a lot of um, discussions about Iran, very great episodes. And I encourage our audience to subscribe, to press the button, and also listen to that podcast and to follow you on Twitter um, and find your work, your political work outside of your acting work also um, in various publications. And we will look for your upcoming projects, especially the Shahnameh one. I'm very excited to see how that would unfold. Thank you, Neva. This has been great. Great talking to you. And um, uh, you guys are great. Thanks. That was Farshad Farhat, an Iranian-American actor and director who's based in California, joining me from Los Angeles. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. You can also support us by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran Podcast and clicking on support. Until next time, goodbye.